Good afternoon. This is Hooting Yard on the Air. My name is Frank Key, and I'm going to read to you for half an hour. Last week's show was the first half of um, the Immense Duck Pond pamphlet, beginning with A is for Aminadab and ending with N is for Night. In fact, it went just over halfway, got to N in the alphabet. And it ended, night has fallen about the house under the twinkling stars. That will do. And so we move on with O is for ogre. The next day, all hell broke loose. Early in the morning, as Blodgett polished the outside spigots, an ogre or wild man hove into view atop the southern hills. Its progress towards the house was implacable. It stamped through the bracken, vaulted the ha-ha with a single bound, negotiated the massive basalt wall with surprising elegance, and sprang towards the terrified Blodgett, whirling its hirsute arms alarmingly and making disgusting guttural noises. It was matted with filth. Flies, gnats and tiny things emitting poisonous goo crawled all over its flesh. It seemed to be decomposing. It drooled. It picked up Blodgett, sank its fangs into his skull and hurled him aside. Pausing momentarily to spit out particles of Blodgett's head, it smashed its way through the wall of the house, oblivious to the fact that there was an ajar door three feet to its right. Once inside the house, its rage seemed to increase. It rushed wildly from room to room, obliterating the furniture, tearing up floorboards, destroying chandeliers, bashing holes into walls and ceilings, sucking the wallpaper off the walls. It chewed up banister rails and regurgitated them, disgorging them with such force that each rail acted as a lethal projectile. At least one urchin was impaled as a result. Five minutes after the ogre's arrival, much of the lower part of the house lay in ruins. Small fires were starting, but they were doused by water spurting from uprooted taps. Uyghur and Jubble were still sprawled in the room of distressed wooden bitterns when the ogre eventually came upon them. It let out an inhuman cry. It picked at its sores. It became becalmed. Fixing it with a bemused stare, Jubble rose to his feet. You know, there might still be some dandelion and burdock left, he said. Would you care for a drop? The ogre pounded its fists against its own head. Then it blinked, shuddered, twitched. Jubble pushed a tin mug into its paw. It gulped the sweet muck down greedily, then threw the mug back at Jubble, missing his ear by a whisker. Something in its manner seemed to change. By now, blind Uyghur too was on her feet. She sniffed at the violent pongs emanating from the ogre, then stepped towards it. "'Thank heaven you have come,' she said. "'Jubble, meet my dear friend Detective Captain Unstrebnod Talb. He comes from a far country, and his brain is hot.'"
is for planaria. Glagolitic script was invented in the latter half of the 9th century by the monk Cyril, who is better known for having devised the alphabet which bears his name, Cyrillic. Glagolitic was designed to provide a written rendering of Old Slavonic, the language spoken by the Moravians, among whom Cyril and his brother Methodius were carrying out their holy work. The word glagol, or hlahol, cannot easily be translated into English. Its meaning involves the sound of bells and the call to the glory of God in worship. Moop seems not to have considered such associations when one considers the subject matter of her secretive glagolitic scribblings. She was embroiled in the study of a fiendish species of flatworms known as planaria, which kill and feed on earthworms. The vile flatworms excrete an enzyme like a narcotic drug that paralyses an earthworm completely. Then they excrete another that dissolves the worm into a sort of soup. Then they suck it up. In the space of half an hour, all that remains is a trace of soil from the earthworm's stomach. Planaria are successful because they have no known predators. Having no muscles, these hideous flatworms simply fall apart if any attempt is made to eat them. Like a vagabond horde, planaria are highly mobile, wiping out all the earthworms in one area before moving on relentlessly to another. It is not difficult to imagine what havoc Moop could wreak in Dr. Cack's potato patches by introducing a gang of killer flatworms. Let us remember that the good doctor had entitled a special issue of his bulletin Let Us Now Sing the Praises of the Humble Earthworm. So essential was its contribution to potato cultivation. Q is for Quintain. Ruhugu's tank rumbled to a halt outside the leaking building. He clambered to the ground, the burnt quintain steady in his grasp. He no longer cared that Jubble had almost destroyed it on one of his bonfires. Ruhugu had managed to rescue it in the nick of time, singeing his elegantly manicured hands as he did so. He knew that he would need the quintain again, otherwise he would have nothing to tilt at on the day of the tourney. So now he seldom let it out of his sight, taking it with him even on his regular tank manoeuvres. Of course, Ruhugu had reported Jubble's pyromaniacal tendencies to Dr. Cack, but his mentor had been preoccupied. So often in recent weeks, Dr. Cack seemed a world away. Ruhugu thought it best to leave him be, as the doctor moped and frowned, his brow furrowed, a a potato in each hand, a potato in each of his innumerable pockets, a potato balanced precariously atop his hat, even a small potato lodged in his mouth. Like the wild boy of Aveyron, he would utter shrill cries if his potatoes were taken away from him. R is for rigor mortis. It will come as no surprise to reveal that the corpse bundled up in burlap in the pointless hut was that of Dr. Cack. He had not been seen for some days. 
It is worth noting that because of the presence of potatoes in and about his body, rigor mortis had been delayed. Dr. Cack's corpse was floppy and malleable, like a floppy and malleable thing, by dint of a variety of chemical compounds present within the experimental potatoes and their interaction both with the cadaver and with the stifling fug of the pointless hut. The names of the chemical compounds are so lengthy and so hard to pronounce that they shall not detain us here. is for spats. In the room of distressed wooden bitterns, Uyghur cracked open another bottle of dandelion and burdock. Celebrations were in order. She and Detective Captain Unstrebnod Talb had not met for 15 years since that time in the aeroplane hangar. Then, Uyghur had just returned from slot, where she had torn some paper, arched her back like a cat, and stood next to a dam. Unstrebnod Tal was at the hangar to meet her, brandishing a trumpet. At this stage in his career, he looked not unlike a Hungarian fairground proprietor. He wore spats. He had gabbled at Uyghur importunately, but his command of human languages was not good, and she had difficulty understanding him. Eventually, she had snatched the trumpet from him and beat him over the head with it repeatedly, stopping him in mid-gabble. Then she pushed him into a cart and rattled off to the house. Now, after all those years, they had a lot to catch up on. The walls of the room shook as Unstrebnod Taub told his anecdotes in booming cataclysmic roars. Jubble shoved putty into his ears to dull the racket. But Uyghur seemed unperturbed, regularly refilling their tin mugs and badgering the detective captain with questions. What had happened to his spats? Was it true that he had arrested the notorious strangler Babinski and shaved off his bristly side whiskers? Was his brain hot? Did moths fly about his head? Did he make crunching noises? Why had he not come sooner? Unstrebnod Taub, flicking gnats and hornets away from his head, smashed up the empty dandelion and burdock bottles with a single thwack from his huge and hairy fists. He had his own question for Uyghur. What had become of his trusty assistant, Aminadab? T is for trellis. Trellis was mere figment, vapour, he appeared to different people at different times as a sort of phantom. He was a tabula rasa, onto which those who met him inscribed their dreams, their yearnings, their hallucinations. All that is except Blodgett, in whose presence Trellis took on a terrifying reality. He would snivel, and Blodgett would have to mop up the snivelings with his filthy shirt cuff. He would mule, 
and Blodgett would thump him on the head, bruising his fist in the process. After Detective Captain Unstrebnodtaub chewed up part of his head, Blodgett's relationship with Trellis became even more intimate. Trellis would tell Blodgett all about the weather in Finland and the nature of ice and give him planks and show him albumen. He would invoke disastrous Plutonian gods and have them frolic miniaturised before Blodgett's eyes, occasionally tweaking the hairs from his nostrils. In return, Blodgett gave Trellis extra helpings of soup, winced at his frailness, concocted diverting bedtime stories and nautical yarns, and plied him with raspberries. Together, they plotted dark and criminal deeds. U is for Unstrebnod Taub. I shall soon be in a position to make an arrest, growled Detective Captain Unstrebnod Taub at breakfast the next morning. Hummingbirds revolved around his head. The scullery had been all but obliterated during the Master Detective's frenzied arrival, and for their breakfast soup the relevant characters had gathered in the stinking yard. Late the previous night, as the moon shimmered in the black sky, Unstrebnodtaub had come upon Dr. Cack's corpse. Using detection magnets and guided by his bat-like inner radar, it had taken him just minutes to pinpoint the whereabouts of the dead potato scientist. His immediate diagnosis was that Dr. Cack had been slain with a whelk, a battery and a puddle of bleach. Further than that, he would not go for the time being. The mysterious presence of ironmongery escaped his notice. His confidence at breakfast astonished even Uyghur. You know who did the deed, she screeched. Let me say this, howled Unstrebnod Taub, shoveling small insects down his gullet and uprooting titanic cedars from the mud. I delay only so that I can compare notes with my esteemed colleague, the sleuth Aminadab. He may be in possession of facts material to this foul deed, of information to which I am not privy despite my genius. His methods are obscure but unfailing in their accuracy. The sleuth Aminadab always carries with him, in either his satchel or his reticule, a small rectangular tin filled with pastils, of a bauxite-like substance which is not actually bauxite itself. He carries, too, a portable kiln. Ignited with a simple household match, the kiln is coated on the inside with a fuel which produces a temperature of thousands of degrees Fahrenheit within two seconds of being lit. It is most uncanny, but I have witnessed this happen with my own eyes. Or rather, I... 
Into this tiny furnace, Aminadab places one of his non-bauxite pastels using a long, thin pair of tongs which he carries about with him in a special compartment sewn into one leg of his pantaloons. He is a resourceful fellow, the sleuth Aminadab. Ten hours later, when the kiln has cooled, he prizes open its tiny hatch, extracts the charred remains of the pastil, and smears it in his hair and upon his brow. Then he packs up the portable kiln, after applying a fresh coating of his inexplicable fuel, replaces it in his reticule or satchel, and goes about his business. Detective Captain Unstrebnotalb stopped howling and beat his fists on the table, smashing it to pieces. And how does this help him solve the case? asked the languid Jubble. Unstrebnotalb sank his fangs into a passing horse before responding. It has nothing to do with the deductive abilities of the sleuth Aminadab, he roared. I merely wish to entertain you at breakfast with an anecdote about his untoward personal habits. It began to rain. V is for violence, and the violence is such that this entire section of the story has been obliterated. W is for water. There were 26 ponds in the grounds of the house, of varying sizes. 16 of them were ponds and 10 were duck ponds. One of the duck ponds was immense. It had claims to be a lake. There was so much water in it. Moop trudged around this immense duck pond, her gaze fixed on the mud through which she trod. An hour earlier, she had stolen Blodgett's wind cheater while his back was turned. It was far too big for her, it was far too big for Blodgett, and the hood hid her head completely. She was plunged in reverie. Every now and then, she stopped trudging and picked up a pebble to hurl into the immense duck pond, disturbing the eerily calm surface of the water. She wondered if the frenzied creature unstrebnod Talb would arrest Trellis. As she began her fifteenth circuit of the duck pond, the water was disturbed by something larger than her pebbles. With a chthonic churning and squelching, something hideous and scarcely describable rose to the surface. It was thinned and scaled, but moved with robotic precision. It appeared to have a teeming mass of eyes, thousands of jellied globules quivering on their stalks. It made no noise. At the sight of it, nearby ducks suffered heart attacks and perished. Moop had more presence of mind than a duck. Unleashing a large net, she threw it over the hell-spawned aquatic beast thing, then stunned it with a dart from her blowpipe. Binding it firmly with a length of stolen rope she found curled in a pocket of Blodgett's wind cheater, she began to drag the nightmare being back to the leaking building. It might possibly prove useful in her anti-potato research, she reflected. She had gone barely ten paces when the duck pond monster unaccountably slipped its bonds and whacked her on the skull with one of its mighty flippers, knocking her unconscious.
is for X. With his mighty paw, Detective Captain Unstrebnod Tal was about to scratch a bloody X on the forehead of Dr. Cack's murderer when his esteemed colleague, the sleuth Aminadab, came crashing onto the scene. He was carrying a punnet full to the brim with odd and inconsequential, odd and inconsequential objects, which he proceeded to describe to Unstrebnod Talbot length. Listeners avid for the details should send me an email headed Please tell me what was in the sleuth Aminadab's brimming punnet, to which I will reply individually to the point of tedium. But Aminadab's rambling drivel cannot be allowed to keep us from the denouement of this exciting story. Hush, hush, Aminadab, you are a sleuth about whom legends will accrete, but for, but for the love of God hold your tongue, screeched Unstrebnod Talb, setting fire to a small herb garden with a blast of his breath. Aminadab unzipped himself from his terrifying aquatic monster costume and placed his punnet on a flagstone next to one of Blodgett's flytraps. You would do well to pay attention to my rambling drivel, Detective Captain Unstrobned Talb, he said, for it is only because I carry with me at all times a vial of Casiba serum that I am able to assist you in bringing this case to a satisfactory conclusion. The deranged potato scientist Moop stunned me with an incredibly powerful poisonous dart from her blowpipe. By rights, I should be in a coma. As it is, I had a split second in which to bite on a serum pill and thus outwit her. Detective Captain Unstrebnod Talb clawed at the sky, wailing horribly. Very clever, Aminadab, but stop calling me Unstrobned Talb, damn you. While the two detectives were occupied with this banter, the culprit fled into the crumbling ruins of the house, forehead yet unmarked with an X. Why is for yours? Blodgett suffered dreadfully from yours, but the condition cannot excuse his behaviour. Yours is also known as Frambesia. Blodgett was also known as Jubble. The deception had been difficult. Sometimes he'd had to be in two places at once. Moop had been willing to impersonate him from time to time, no questions asked. She had been a useful ally, but he had begun to distrust her. She would be the next to go, after Ruhugu. Preening his mustachios, he cackled, as if he were a character in a 19th century melodrama. Z is for Zincograph. The sleuth Aminadab felt it was time to retire. This had been his 10,000th case, quite enough for any detective. He and Unstrobned Talb, or Unstrebnod Talb, whatever his name was, had parted as dawn broke on the Thursday morning. They had stood triumphantly, arm in arm, each with a foot, or in Unstrebnod Talb's case, more properly a hoof, planted on the dead body of Blodgett, or Jubble. The end had been horrifying and very messy. They had had to call on Uyghur to help, and by the time they realised the scimitar had not been sharpened, it was too late. 
Afterwards, Uyghur and Moop got rid of the corpse. The distant splash led Aminadab to conclude that Blodgett Jubble's body ended up in one of the 26 ponds, but he didn't really care which one. Three weeks later, when he returned home, he wrote up the case as usual. Fueled by dandelion and burdock and bilge grew buns, he sat late into the night engraving his zincographs. Half of what he wrote was lies, of course. Unstrebnod Taub hardly featured in the Aminadab version. Moop and Trellis virtually disappeared, although he awarded them a footnote in a sentimental moment. He was, as usual, merciless with himself. If anyone ever bothered to read the narrative, they would surely conclude that the sleuth Aminadab didn't have a clue what was going on and still didn't twig what had actually happened, even at the end, as he bid farewell to Detective Captain Unstrebnod Talb, his absurd agglomeration of luggage long abandoned save for the punnet and reticule, enormous birds beating their enormous wings around him as he stood ankle-deep in mud, weird and hapless, at the very edge of the immense duck pond. So that was the end of the Immense Duck Pond pamphlet. Um, and there's a little bit of time left over. So I thought um, the Hooting Yard post bag was gnawed by shrews over the weekend, rendering much of the correspondence indecipherable. Still, it's a timely reminder that many listeners have been waiting patiently for answers to their questions. So here's a quick roundup. Um, I don't really have time for the questions, so... Um, for those listeners who sent in questions, you'll know the answer to your question. Tim from Swanage, stay in your pod. Maisie from Crows and Ra, I think you may have inadvertently downloaded the Cephalo podcast. Put it in a bucket filled to the brim with brine and take it to the seaside. Arpad from Helsinki. The correct pronunciation is Nougar. Dave from the Old Boathouse. You are in grave peril. Try to escape from your pod as soon as you can. Constance from Verona. I'm afraid your letter is one of the most thoroughly gnawed ones and I'm unable to read a word of it. Ingmar from Spokane. Chop up the celery first, then trap the flies. Your mother's brooch has fallen behind the dresser. You will find solace in pole vaulting. On Thursday, you will receive news from afar, but do not act upon it, or the cosmos will be plunged into 20 billion years of apocalyptic ballyhoo.
that's the end of Hooting Yard on the air for this week. Um, I'll leave you with a brief quotation from L.O. Howard and F.C. Bishop's extremely useful book, The Housefly and How to Suppress It. The true housefly is very abundant in localities where little or no horse manure is found, and in such cases it breeds in other manure, such as chicken manure in backyard poultry lots, or in slops or fermenting vegetable material, such as spent hops, moist bran in silage, or rotting potatoes. And um, I promise not to mention potatoes for at least another two weeks, or possibly three. That's all for this week. Bye-bye.